Last time we established the foundational principle of studying prophecy. Interpret it literally, according to its plain meaning. This is based on God's integrity and faithfulness, that he means what he says and says what he means. Obeying this principle shows we are submitting our thoughts to his thoughts, rather than replacing his thoughts with ours. Now we are ready to start building on this foundation. Putting together all the scriptures on prophecy in the right way is like building a large house using a lot of scattered material, for there are thousands of prophecies throughout the Bible. If we don't put them together properly, we will end up with a big mess. First of all, we need to build up the right framework of understanding into which all the individual prophecies can be fitted. It's also like putting together a big jigsaw puzzle from many scattered pieces. There are many prophecies scattered all over the Bible and each is like a separate piece of the puzzle. God gave a massive amount of prophetic material to many different prophets, yet all combined to produce a unified vision of the future. It's up to us to study and put these pieces together in the right way so we can see the whole picture. You can't put them together any old way. It's easy to go wrong and create quite a distorted picture. To see the true prophetic panorama, we must put together the many prophetic scriptures into their right place. You know when you've got it right, for they will all fit together perfectly. Any correct interpretation must harmonize with the rest of the prophetic scriptures. If you think you've found a contradiction, it's because you're not fitting the pieces together correctly, for God does not contradict himself. A vital principle in doing a big jigsaw is to do the outer frame first. You don't jump into the middle and get started. Likewise with prophecy, we need to proceed carefully and construct the overall framework first. Then we'll be able to see more clearly how to fit in the other pieces. Thus, to understand prophecy rightly, we must first grasp the overall structure and big picture. Otherwise, we won't be able to fit the pieces together correctly and we'll end up with confusion. This leads to our next key to understanding prophecy, dispensationalism. This gives the overall structure of history and prophecy from God's perspective. It's based on the first key, the literal interpretation of scripture. The word dispensation comes from the Greek word oikonomia, literally house law, which describes a particular administration, management or stewardship of a household. Dispensationalism, then, in its basic form, says that God rules the world according to different dispensations at different times. Thus, all time is divided into different dispensations or extended periods or ages of time, characterized by a definite kind of divine administration. God sets the rules for each dispensation, and at key moments of history, he intervenes to change the way he runs his household, bringing in a new dispensation. This is always done through a new covenant with man. These dispensational changes are necessary because God progressively reveals himself and his plan to the human race. It's like parents managing their household. The household rules could be described as a dispensation. As the children grow up, some of these rules will change, for example, bedtimes. So there will necessarily be different phases or dispensations in the stewardship of their household. Likewise, the Bible clearly reveals different dispensations in God's dealings with the human race. At the moment, we are in the dispensation of the church age, but, but it will not always be so. We will see that these dispensations are self-evident from a straightforward reading of scripture. Many things remain the same, but whatever is changed is explained by God at the time.
Some dispensations are in the past and are the subject of history, whereas others are yet future and are the subject of prophecy. Thus, to understand the big picture of prophecy, it's vital to understand the past, present and future dispensations of God and the differences between the different periods of time. Dispensationalism gives due importance to God's progressive revelation through time and helps us to keep track of it. God does not reveal everything about a subject in one place, but progressively over thousands of years, each time building on what he had revealed before. Often he introduces it in seed form in Genesis, and then he develops it all the way through the Bible to its climax in Revelation. So to comprehend the overall message of Scripture on any subject, we need to trace it through the Bible from the beginning, seeing how God gradually develops his revelation in stages. It's all in the phrase, the times and seasons. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. The two words, times and seasons, translate the words in Greek, which are chronos and kairos. Chronos is an extended period of time, like a season, whereas kairos describes a special moment in time or a short transitional time. It's a turning point when a major change is affected, bringing about a new chronos, a new season. This can be applied to our own lives, which go through seasons. During a season or chronos, things are stable for an extended period of time. But then suddenly a kairos moment happens, when there is a sudden change in our life, such as getting married or having a child. Suddenly our whole life, our priorities, the rules change, and we enter into a new season. So the times and seasons in the Bible refer to God's dispensations and his dispensational changes. Each kairos is a major divine intervention which moves God's dealings with man into a new phase, bringing in a new dispensation or season with different rules. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, who at various times, that's the past dispensations, and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, and that's speaking of the present dispensation, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. That literally is, he made the ages or dispensations. Thus God created the ages of time. He created the different dispensations. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's literally the ages were framed by the word of God. So God framed the ages by speaking his word at each kairos moment, and thus he defined the nature of the next age. Acts 1.7 speaks of the times and seasons, the dispensations, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Acts 17, 26 and 27 says that God's purpose in all of this is his revelation to man, so that men might find God. Let's read that. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Understanding the dispensations is a major key to understanding the overall progression of God's revelation in the Bible. First, let us cover the overall structure of time by dividing human history into seven periods of a thousand years. If a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, then we can think of these as seven days of a week, the great week of history, modeled on creation week. 
Firstly, God began by dealing with mankind as a whole in the 2,000 years, or two days, from Adam to Abraham. This is the age of the Gentiles. Then the next 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ is the age of Israel. Starting with Abraham, continuing with Isaac and Jacob, or Israel, and his 12 sons, he formed the special separated nation of Israel and revealed himself to them and through them. These two days ended with the death of Christ. The four days, or 4,000 years from Adam to Christ, are the, called the former days. After the resurrection of Christ, we entered into the latter days. The next 2,000 years, or two days, is the age of the church, the body of Christ, a new body of people called out of both Israel and the nations. These will end with the second coming of Christ at the end of the six days from Adam. When Christ returns to the earth, he'll personally reign here as King of Kings. This is the age of Christ. According to Revelation 20, he will reign for a thousand years or one day. This is the Sabbath day of history, when the earth enters her rest. This final day completes the divine week of seven days or seven thousand years of time. Finally, at the end of time, there will be a new heaven and earth, and all the redeemed will be united into one people of God for all eternity. Thus, in the outworking of God's plan of redemption and in his management of mankind, God deals with three distinct groups. First, the Gentiles, second, Israel, and third, the church. We've seen how the focus of God's plan of redemption has changed from group to group through the ages. Within God's overall ultimate purpose, he has a distinct plan. He has a distinct purpose and a distinct program for each group, and he manages them accordingly in the various dispensations. 1 Corinthians 10.32 is the key scripture for this threefold distinction of peoples. It says, Give no offense either to Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Throughout the Bible, Israel always refers to the Jewish people, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Gentiles, represented in this verse by the Greeks, is everyone else. And the church is a special group consisting of both Jews and Gentiles who have been called out through the gospel to belong to Christ. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, meaning called out ones. Let's now go through the dispensations in more detail. They are self-evident stages in God's administration over man. The first Kairos event was creation in Genesis 1 and the establishment of the Edenic Covenant in Genesis 2. This introduced the dispensation of innocence. Adam and Eve were given dominion and told to multiply. The only rule they had to follow was, don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. This was their test of obedience. The next Kairos was the fall of man when they sinned. God responded with the Adamic covenant in Genesis 3, 14 to 19, when he described the curse that would come on them and the earth as a consequence of their sin, which changed the ground rules. One example was clothing. Before they were naked, but now God clothed them in animal skins. He also promised them he would provide a savior who would redeem man from the hand of the enemy. That's in Genesis 3:15. This introduced the dispensation of conscience, for Adam had chosen to live by the knowledge of good and evil within himself. This dispensation is described in chapters 3 to 6 of Genesis. The next Kairos was Noah's flood, a worldwide judgment, followed by the covenant God made with man through Noah after the flood, which is still in force, by the way, and that 
Kairos event is from Genesis 7 to Genesis 9. In this covenant, God instituted human government, authorizing man to investigate and punish crime and carry out capital punishment for murder. Also at this point, God permitted the eating of meat, but not blood. Before this, the rule was vegetarian. So this covenant introduced the dispensation of human government, and it's covered in Genesis chapters 9 to 11. The next kairos was God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is developed in Genesis 12 to 28, which is foundational to all the later covenants through which God moved forward his salvation and kingdom programs. The covenants before this were made to all mankind, but now God focused on Abraham and his seed. This was an unconditional covenant, promising Abraham a nation, a land, and a seed, through whom salvation, or blessing, would come to the world. Thus this covenant introduced the dispensation of promise. And in the Bible, this is from Genesis 12 to Exodus 11. As God said in Genesis 12, 1-3, I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This covenant also changed the ground rules for the Gentiles, because now their blessing was connected to their relationship with the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that if they cursed them, they would be cursed. The next kairos was the Exodus and the law of Moses. God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, which initiated the dispensation of the law, which was from the Exodus to the end of the Old Testament. This old covenant was given purely to Israel as a temporary covenant in preparation for the everlasting new covenant that Christ would bring. The next kairos was Christ's death and resurrection when he established the new covenant. This new covenant in Christ superseded the old covenant of Moses, which is no longer in operation. Thus its animal sacrifices and ceremonial laws no longer apply. They functioned as types and shadows to prepare us for the fulfillment in Christ. So Jesus brought in a new dispensation through the new covenant, but there was a surprise. The prophets had seen the Messiah's coming in two stages first to suffer and die for our sins and then secondly to reign in glory as king over the whole earth but it was not revealed to them that there was a significant time between his suffering and his glory God kept this dispensation as a mystery hidden in God because it was connected with Israel's rejection of Christ had Israel accepted her king he could have established his kingdom on earth fulfilling the vision of the Old Testament prophets but since they rejected him this kingdom had to be postponed and instead the church age was introduced God only started to reveal the mystery when Israel's rejection of the Messiah became clear otherwise it would have infringed her free will the mystery was that God would form a new body distinct from Israel consisting of Jews and Gentiles in Christ which is the body of Christ his church while Israel is under a judicial blindness the church is now anointed to be God's representative and witness for this age so this dispensation is called the church age now we go into the future the church age won't go on forever God will bring it to an end with the rapture of the church, which is the start of the next Kairos event, which will again dramatically change things. The rapture initiates the tribulation, a seven-year period of worldwide judgment, concluding with the second coming of Christ. The book of Revelation, in chapters 4 to 19, describes this in great detail. 
This Kairos transition time corresponds to what happened in the days of Noah. First, Noah disappeared into the ark, corresponding to the rapture, followed by the worldwide judgment of the flood, corresponding to the tribulation. After this, the world entered a new dispensation, and likewise, Christ will initiate a new dispensation at his second coming. This is called the Messianic Age, the Age of Christ, or the Age of the Lord, or the Day of the Lord, since he will personally reign on earth and bring the nations under his kingdom law. It's also called the Millennium, as it will last for a thousand years, according to Revelation 20. It will be the golden age of the earth, the time of restoration of all things, prophesied by all the prophets. It's an age of righteousness and peace, with the curse removed from nature and Satan and his demons locked up in the pit. And we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And finally, at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the pit for a short time. He'll gather all the unsaved in a final rebellion, but God destroys all the rebels by fire and throws Satan into the lake of fire. You can read that in Revelation 20, 7 to 10. We have now reached the end of time. For now, the universe is destroyed, Revelation 20:11, And all the unsaved dead stand before the great white throne for their final sentencing and dismissal into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, 12 to 15. Then God brings in the eternal state with a new heaven and a new earth of total perfection. And we see that in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. Ephesians 1:10 calls this the dispensation of the fullness of times. So each dispensation has its distinct characteristics by which it can be recognized. When you're doing a big jigsaw, it helps to match the pieces, gathering together the pieces that look similar, because they're likely to be close together in the picture. And likewise, prophetic events belong to certain different and distinguishable time periods, such as the church age, the tribulation, second coming, the millennium, the eternal state. Knowing the characteristics of each of these periods will help us to discern where each piece belongs. So when you read a prophecy, you should be able to identify which time period it's talking about. Dispensations, you see, help us understand the flow of history from God's viewpoint. Understanding them also answers apparent contradictions in the Bible. Thus, in some periods, it's forbidden to eat pork, and in others, it's allowed. The millennial diet will be vegetarian again. Likewise, there are changes in other ground rules. Dispensationalism does not just distinguish between time periods, but also between peoples, being careful to discern the differing times, seasons, and peoples of God. This is mostly just a matter of common sense, really, making clear distinctions. When we study a passage, we should consider of which dispensation and to which people it is speaking, the Gentiles, Israel, or the Church. This will give us a clearer understanding and is, and is particularly important when we're studying prophecy. Dispensationalism maintains a clear distinction between Israel and the church, whereas other systems of theology tend to confuse them, resulting in the false doctrine of replacement theology. This says that the church is the new Israel and so has replaced Israel. But I say we should uphold the balance of scripture. The church has an important role to play and Israel also. Dispensationalism understands the whole Bible through the unifying principle that God is progressively working out his salvation and kingdom purposes in time to the glory of God. It is based on the literal interpretation of all scripture, seeing God's revelation as unfolding progressively. 
At each stage, although God's revelation is not complete, it stands as true and will not be shown as false or in need of correction later on. Thus the New Testament stands on the foundation of the Old, clarifying it and expanding on it, but not rewriting it. We should understand the Bible in the way God revealed it, according to its progressive revelation in time. This means reading it as it was written. Just as we should read a novel from its beginning and follow the progression of its ideas, so to understand God's book rightly, we must read it from the beginning and start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets saw that all history was moving towards the coming of the Messiah as the King of Kings, who would personally set up a literal, visible and political kingdom of God on earth, which is called the Messianic Kingdom. They predicted that the Messiah, the son of David, would reign over the earth from Jerusalem with Israel exalted among the nations. This belief comes from a literal interpretation of the prophetic scriptures. We should accept this prophetic scenario of the Old Testament and expect the New Testament revelation to fit within that. The New Testament may make many things clear that were unclear before and reveal some completely new things, but it does not nullify the previously revealed truth. Other theologies, such as covenant theology, reject this literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecy, claiming that it can only be correctly interpreted through the lens of the New Testament. They say that the New Testament emphasis on the church as God's covenant people means we should rewrite Old Testament references to Israel and the kingdom as applying to the church. Since Christ established the church instead of the messianic kingdom, they say the church must be the fulfillment of those prophecies. Therefore, God will not establish this messianic kingdom, even though the New Testament also clearly teaches it. For instance, Revelation 20. Thus, they try to use the New Testament to justify changing the original literal meaning of Old Testament prophecy, spiritualizing it, in order to make the prophecies have their fulfillment in the church. But would you take this approach in reading a novel? Moreover, Jesus declared he did not come to change or correct the meaning of the Old Testament. That's in Matthew 5.17. The Old Testament stands as it was given. The fact that the New Testament gives further revelation does not justify us in rewriting the Old. Just because the New clarifies the Old, that does not justify breaking the key rule of literal interpretation. If you read through a novel, there are mysteries in the early chapters, and so there is much you don't understand fully. Then, as you read the later chapters, you get more clarity as different questions are answered. So we say that the New Testament clarifies what was more hidden in the Old. Also, sometimes, a later chapter may introduce a completely new theme. However, all these new revelations do not justify deleting or changing what was previously revealed in the earlier chapters. They clarify and build on what was before, and the reader is to hold the old and the new together for a proper understanding. Just because later chapters bring new, previously unseen developments and reveal new meanings latent in earlier chapters, that does not allow us to rewrite the earlier chapters. They must stand. So God spoke to Israel in the Old Testament and gave her many prophecies. Dispensationalists take them as literal truth. They don't try and explain them away or spiritualize them in order to claim that they are fulfilled now by the church. To do this would be to violate scripture and change what God actually said. We don't have the right to rewrite the Old Testament. We must take it as it was written. 
just because we now have a higher revelation through Christ, this does not make the previous revelation wrong. Dispensationalists say that these prophecies of the restoration of the messianic kingdom to Israel have clearly not been fulfilled, even though the Messiah has come. The reason is that this kingdom was postponed because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. But the prophecies will be fulfilled at his second coming. Meanwhile, God introduced a new thing, the church age, which was a mystery hidden in God, and therefore not the subject of Old Testament prophecy. However, the prophecies of the coming of Christ were deliberately designed to leave open the possibility of the church age in the gap between the prophecies of his first and second comings. Having shared the merits of a dispensational approach to scripture, I also want to point out some dangers that arise from people misunderstanding and misusing it. One danger in recognizing differences between time periods is that some go too far in this. They overemphasize the discontinuities and don't give enough emphasis to the continuities, for many things stay the same through all the dispensations. For example, the nature and character of God stays the same. God doesn't change. Some say, in the Old Testament, God's an angry God, but in the New Testament, he's a God of love. This is total nonsense. He's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New. He reveals himself progressively, but he is always consistent. The moral law always stays the same. It's summarized by the law of love. For moral law is grounded in God's very own eternal unchanging nature of love. Ceremonial law, however, does change through the dispensations. The ceremonies and sacrifices of the law of Moses are no longer commanded upon us in the new covenant. They were wonderful pictures of Christ, but the fact that Christ has fulfilled them is reflected in the new rule that they are no longer required. In the church age, we just have two ordained ceremonial institutions, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Divine institutions of delegated authority, such as marriage, also don't change once they've been introduced by God. Another thing that doesn't change across all the different time periods is the means of salvation. Salvation in every dispensation is by grace through faith. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the ages were framed by the word of God. Then, from Hebrews 11, verse 4 to 40, it describes the men who were saved and pleased God from every dispensation. And in each case, it's their faith that's highlighted. By faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, and so on. And Hebrews 11.6 affirms that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the basis of man's salvation and pleasing God in every dispensation is faith. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. Dispensationists are often accused of teaching otherwise, but it's simply not true. Some use dispensationalism to justify the false doctrine of cessationalism, the belief that the supernatural gifts have now passed away. They do this by inventing a dispensational division within the church age. They claim that when the canon of scripture was completed at the close of the apostolic age, the gifts of the spirit became unnecessary. This has no scriptural basis and produces unbelief, blocking the flow of God's spirit. This is an abuse of dispensational thinking. Another common dispensational error is to misrepresent the distinction between Israel and the church by saying Israel is God's earthly people while the church is God's heavenly people. 